This will be our final lecture on the great Sefer Kuzari. What we're going to review today is the end of the fourth essay and the fifth essay. And with this will conclude our study of Ibn Levi's great work. What we're going to see and discuss in these essays is at the end of the fourth essay, the sciences and the wisdoms that were among B'nai Israel, specifically with a, a long analysis of Sefer Yitzira, the book of creation, and then other indications of the great wisdom that was that was known to B'nai Yisrael. That's the fourth end of the fourth essay, starting from Simon Chof Dalid 24. And then in the fifth essay, the Chavar will present to the king a summary of philosophical knowledge about science and God, and also the Kalam arguments that prove what needs to be proven religiously about God. The Kalam was a sect of... Um, or I should say a school of Islamic theologians who are using philosophy or argumentation to support the religious beliefs. And he's going to present those two schools of thought to the, uh, to the king in the fifth essay. Let's begin. This is from the fourth essay, 24. The king asks the Chavar to show him some of the ancient wisdoms sciences that the cover claimed had been among B'nai Yisrael. So the cover begins with Sefer Yitzira of Avram Avinu, the book of creation of that was written, according to Yudah Levi, written by Avram Avinu, which he says contains very deep things that would take a lot to explain. And in fact, we are not even going to delve into that deeply what Yudah Levi presents here in the Sefer Kuzi about the book of creation, because it is, in fact, very deep. Even what's presented in the Sefer Kuzari is extremely deep and takes a lot of understanding. So we're going to present some basic ideas that Rida Levi says here um, in his analysis of Sefer Yitzira, the Book of Creation. And his understanding of this book is, as he says, that the Book of Creation teaches that we can discern the unity of God through seeing that which unites the various things that exist. So in other words, by, ana by analyzing reality and the multiplicity of reality, by analyzing it and seeing that ultimately there are unifying patterns that carry across all of, all of existence that indicates that all of reality is rooted in one God. The one God that arranges everything. Yudah Levi begins with a Mishnah in the Book of Creation that talks about three things that are at the root of everything that is, and those are Sefar, Sipor, and Sefer. And according to Yudah Levi, what that means is that in order for someone to create something, he first has to have Sefar. He has to have an idea of the amounts and the measurements of what he wants to form. For example, if a person wants to build a house, he has to have an idea of the measurements of the house. Sipur is referring to speech, by which anything that's created can be described. And the last one is <clears throat> Sefer, the book, writing, how you can write about anything. By the humans, thought, speech, and writing 
are three different and distinct things. While for God, God's thought, God's speech, and God's writing are one and the same. And what does that mean by when we talk about God's writing? What that means is his creations, the manifestation of his thought. And his speech is the articulation of his thought and how things come into being. So therefore, by God, thought, speech, and writing are all united. And he says the example would be, imagine you could, just by thinking something, imagine you could create something. Um, and of course, this gets into the idea of the possibility of creating through speech. And he alludes to this. That's the uh, connect, That is an idea that's connected to the book of creation, that we, in fact, can be like gods and be creators like God if we can only tap in <clears throat> to the godly statements, which actually have the power to create. So that he alludes to that idea that the book of creation teaches us that there is a creative force that where thought, speech, and creation are united in the utterance, the utterance of let there be light is what made the light come into existence. And we too can perhaps know that, tap into that knowledge. Of course, he, then he continues then that has to do with language. And there he continues and says some languages and some scripts are superior to others because some languages have words that actually comport to the very nature of things. And sometimes the words do not match the nature of things. The godly language, that is the, la the language created by God that he taught to man. So Yudah Levi says that Hashem created Lashon HaKodesh, taught it to man and put it into his tongue. That is the most perfect of languages and its expressions are the most appropriate for that to which they refer. And that's the instead of Pasuk in Bereshus, everything that Adam named him, that was his name, meaning that was the most appropriate name. And therefore, the holy tongue, Lashon HaKodesh, that is what makes Lashon HaKodesh special. And even the angels are more affected by Lashon HaKodesh more than the language, and that he's referring to the Gemara that says that angels do not speak Aramaic. And he understands it to mean that the holy tongue, Lashon HaKodesh, reflects the true essence of reality. Again, this is an idea that's associated with creation through speech. And this is an idea taught, according to Levi, in the book of creation. And in fact, the script, the Hebrew script, the shape of his letters is not accidental and not unintended. Rather, it is appropriate for the idea of each letter. And therefore, he says, there can be holy names that have an effect. And that shouldn't be shocking. There can be combinations of words that have effects. And that's because, he says, they're coming from first consideration, first thinking, thinking with a pure soul, a pure soul that is angelic, that can have thought, and then can express that thought and give a word to it. And the word can be a holy name or a combination of letters, and that will enable the person to unite thought, speech, and writing, meaning he can then create something as if he, um, as he said, and his thought and his writing and his saying and his writing that is his creating become one. And that's where we say that God created the world with three Sepharim, Sephar, Sipur, and Sefer. That God, who is one, unites these disparate things. Then Ibn later continues that the Sefer Yitzhia talks about the, 20, the 32 paths of wisdom, which are the 10 Sephiris and the 22 letters. The 10 Sephiris is the 10 numbers, going to Ibn Levi. 
and the 22 letters, of course, is the letters of the Aleph base. Um, the fact that there are 10 numbers, it's a decimal system, Rabbi Lady says, is a deep secret. Now he's a decimal system, and he doesn't tell us what that deep secret is. But this is what the world is divided to, um, number and speech, and speech has 22 letters of the alphabet, and those 22 letters are, are, have, are, have three different types of letters, three mothers, seven doubles, and 12 simple letters. The three mothers are Aleph, Mem, and Shin, from which come Avir, Mayim, and Esh, ear, water, and fire. So this, um, the relationship of the letters parallels the relationship in the world. Remember, this is the idea of Sefer Yitzir, that we can find various parallel relationships that exist in, in various uh, systems, and that indicates that everything is united. And similarly in man, okay, so there's a, there's a relationship between these three letters, Aleph, Mem, and Shim, ear, water, and fire. And we can find those three things relating in man and in time. And those are the three witnesses, Olam, Nefesh, and Shana. Meaning we can see the same three things in the universe, not just three things, we'll see, we'll take this through the whole alphabet. The alphabet is divided into three, seven, and twelve, and the three refer to three ideas that are in the universe, and there's a parallel three things in, in man and three things in time. And we'll see the same things when it comes to the seven, and the same thing when it comes to the twelve. And that tells us that the various things that we see in the universe ultimately are derived from one source. And there's one wisdom and everything. So here's how it goes. The three mothers in the Aleph Bays, Aleph, Mem, and Shim, and that is in the world. That's ear, water, and fire. In the in the person, that's the body, belly, and head. In the in the year, it has in time. That's the time of moisture, cold, and heat. So that's what he goes through, that there's three types of things in the year, three types of things in the body, three types of things in the universe. Um, then we get to the seven doubled letters. Those are seven letters of the Aleph Bays that can receive a Dugish and change their pronunciation, and that's Beged Kafras, Bez Gimel Dalad Chof Pei Resh and Tof, which can be Vez Rimel Dalad, etc. Kof, um, say if you see, has a Resh too, and those have the set in the world, those are the seven planets. In the soul, those are seven known planets, and they used to be considered to be seven planets by all the Rishainim. Um, in the soul, wisdom, wealth, power, etc., and you go look it up, and in the year, in time, the seven days of the week. And then we get to the 12 simple letters. 12 simple letters in the universe are reflected in the 12 signs of the zodiac. In the soul, in the person, they're reflected in various limbs, a limb to see, a limb to hear, a limb to smell, etc. And in the year, of course, they are the 12 months. And then we have one on top of three, three on top of seven, seven on top of 12. That is to say, that everything is, all this variety that you see in the universe is rooted in the unity of God. Vidal Levi then analyzes very specific things that are mentioned or left out in Sefer Yitzir, which I'm going to skip that. Then he talks about the fact that the seven doubled letters parallel or allude to the six sides of a cube and in the center, the holy temple. And that's, and he says that means that the divine, the Dover Halaki, the connection with the divine, unites all opposites, like the center of a cube that keeps it all together. If there's no center, there wouldn't be sides. Then he locates that uniting power in those three systems of the universe, the year, and the soul. He then notes that the limbs of a female male and the limbs of a female are considered the same limbs, just they're inverted. And that's what the Sefer Yitzir means when it says 
Zachar is Aleph Mem Shin and the Keva female is Aleph Shin Mem. Oinig and Negar are the same letters but inverted. And that tells us something fundamental about reality, which is that opposites um, together form a unity. And the fact that things are different is an indication, the difference of things is an indication of a unity, which then is really the same thing, but in its inverted way. Everything gets to Davar Behifuchay, the thing, and its inversion. And those very opposites combine and unite and create um, a totality of a unified world. Then he goes into this fact that the um, author of the Sefer Kitsira, which again is attributed to Avram Avinu, according to Bidalevi, talks about fire, water, and air, doesn't talk about the fourth element, believed to be four elements, of earth. And what he says is that everything is, earth stands for matter, and everything is made up from matter, but there could be a fiery kind of matter, an airy kind of matter, or a watery kind of matter. He goes through the uh, next, the Mishnah in Sefer talks about the Ruach HaLekim, and Ruach HaKadosh, from which the angels are created and souls cleave to. After that is air, after that is the water. And when it says that in Sefer Yitzhiya about the water, it's talking about the water that's above the Rakia, mentioned in the Voracious, which the philosophers are not aware of and therefore denied, didn't agree with. The Rambam has something interesting to say about this water too in um, 2.30 of the Guide for the Perplexed. Udal Levi says you could perhaps find them in the uh, atmosphere where the, where the clouds reach. And then there's a fire, and that's either, okay, going back to the passage, the description of water in Bereshis, he says that's the first, the Hiluk matter, the first matter, prime matter, I'm sorry, prime matter, which is the Hiuli and the Ramban in Bereshis. That's called Toyu Vavoyu because it didn't have any qualities until it received qualities by God's will, and that's called the Ruach Elikim. That's God's will that gave qualities to the formless matter, which is considered, which is compared to water. The reason why it's compared to water, it, uh, water is the best thing to, to um, consider to be the basis of all material things, as he explains there. Skip that. Okay, then he talks about the name Yudke Vavke, that refers to God's essence, that has no description. And here he says something, which um, also says in the God text, that the essence of the thing is not its reality, while God's reality, his existence is his essence. The essence of everything is description, which every description is genus and species, what makes it different, what makes it alike to other things, what makes it unique, while the first cause doesn't belong to a species, therefore he, the only thing we can say about God is that he is he. Then, the author of the book of Yitzir continues to discuss, and I call him the author of the book, that's what Bidalevi calls it, by the way. He says in the book, in, in the Sefer Kuzi, he says the author of the book. He talks about motion, and the fact that motion of the spheres, the fact that the world is in motion, causes there to be numerous things, and he compares this variety that happens through motion to a kind of motion that would happen through the Aleph Bays, that by things moving around in the Aleph Bays, Therefore, that creates combinations through the Aleph base. So the Aleph could combine with everything, and everything could combine with the Aleph. And that leads us to a total of 231 combinations, called 231 gates. 
and you could do that math there. 22, 22, um, 20, each of them could combine with 21 others, but we're not counting Aleph, Bez, and Bez, Aleph twice. So that gets us to 231 Sha'arim. And that's if you do it times two. And if you do it times three, then it becomes, as the Sefer Yitzir says, becomes something that you can't talk and you can't hear. Meaning that the possibility of combination becomes increasingly, um, the numbers, the possible combinations becomes increasingly greater. Then, the, so that's why, so the idea of the, the, the Galgal, the spheres that move, that creates, um, that creates multiplicity in the world. Now, but why do we get to the spheres in the first place? Why do we get space with the six sides of space? Again, back to that cube idea. So he says the following idea. This is really interesting. He says that, well, what is Hashem's name, Yudke Vavke? Why does it have the letters Yudke Vav? Because these letters are the souls of other letters. By the way, we had this earlier in the book where he also mentioned the, the Aleph, so this is a contradiction, Aleph from Ekya. But he's talking about the letters of Yudke Vavke, and those are the souls because they're the vowels. Okay, so everything that God creates, he creates through his name. God and the angels talk with an intellectual speech and know before creating the world everything that will be in it and how their speech and, and intellect will affect the world. Okay, But the intellect, the, the material world is created then through a speech using the name of God, using the name of God, which has the letters yud ke vav and of those three letters, you can have six combinations. yud ke vav yud vav ke hey vav yud ke yud vav vav yud ke vav ke yud so the six combinations, and that's why we have six sides of space. Because of the six combinations that result from God's name. Now he says, he says this, this explanation for space is not going to satisfy everyone. Either because it's too deep to be understood, or because we're just not smart enough. The philosophers also insist says Abuna Levi, that from one, only one comes, right? That's the problem, is the multiplicity of the world. How does that derive from one? If God is one and simple, then from that, only one simple thing can follow. How can many things follow from one thing? This is a problem dealt with in the Mayur of Uchum and many philosophers have discussed it. And because of this, the philosophers assume that there's an angel that's close to the first cause, and that angel, indeed, is the only one thing that results directly from God, and that angel has a multiplicity within him because he knows itself that angel, which is knowledge, knows itself and knows that he has a cause. And therefore, there's two things within that angel. Therefore, two things can follow from that angel. And the two things that follow from that angel are a second angel and the first sphere. That's the outermost sphere in the cosmology of the ancients, the sphere that has this fixed stars in it. What we call the stars, as opposed to the planets. Um, that second angel, he also has two things. He knows that he's caused and he knows itself. And therefore... He gives rise to another sphere. That's the sphere that has Shabsai, Saturn, in it. And um, and also gives rise to a third angel, gives rise to a fourth, until we get to the final sphere, which is the lunar sphere, and the active intellect. That's the intellect of the lunar sphere. People, says Abidah Levi, accepted this and started believing it. They thought it was proven because it was attributed to the great philosophers of Greece. However, it's actually just a claim, hasn't been proven, and there's many problems with it. For example, one of, first of all, how come this shefa, this flow of intellect, stopped at the lowest sphere? Why didn't it keep on going? And also, that angel, that second one, should know three things. He knows the angel above him, and he knows the cause of that. 
And also, how do we know that just because it, it perceives itself, that should cause a sphere, and the fact that it perceives its cause should cause another angel? Uh, Aristotle, by being aware of himself, should give rise to a sphere. And by being aware of what caused him, should give rise to an angel. So, Yerida Levi says, you know why I mentioned these, and the cover, of course, says, why did I mention these fundamental ideas? Is because you shouldn't be confused by philosophy. Don't think that if you follow philosophy, you would find, you would find um, manucha, repose from all the doubts. And you would think that, okay, if I would only started philosophy, everything would be proven. The truth is that all the, th the speculations of the philosophers, a healthy intellect doesn't accept, and really can, they cannot be proven. Additionally, no two philosophers agree with each other unless they're following some tradition like Empedocles, Pythagoras, Aristotle, or Plato, or the other philosophers don't agree with each other. So here, Rabino Levy consistently says that philosophy is deficient. Now the king asks a very interesting question. That's his presentation of Sefi Yetzirah. And now, there is an amazing um, exchange here. Which is, the king says to him, I don't understand why you need this whole theory of the letters of the divine name. The fact that the divine name has three letters, Yud, K, and Vav, Yud, and He, and Vav, and those give rise to six combinations. Um, I don't know why you need that as a theory to the multiplicity of space, the fact that space has six sides. Well, why do you need an angel or spheres? Why don't you say, well, God willed to create the world? As it says in Beratius, God created everything in all species in one shot, in one time, and gave them the power to continue to exist, as we say in Tefillah, Hashem is constantly renewing creation. Why can't I just accept that? Why do I need this complex kind of derivation of exist, of reality from God? And the Chavar answers him, he says, King of the Khazars, you're right. You're, good. you're saying good. That is the truth, and that is the right kind of faith, and abandoning anything superfluous. And he says the following amazing thing. He says, it could be this Sefer too, the book of creation that we find this kind of thinking. This is how Avram Avinu thought when he knew the unity of God through reason, but hadn't yet experienced revelation. But once he experienced revelation, Avram Avinu abandoned logic and only sought to, be, to find favor in the eyes of God after God told him taught him how to find favor. Remember this idea that where and what to do is something we can only learn from God. And that's what our relationship to God is not based on thought, not based on philosophy and logic. It's based on knowing the right actions, knowing how to find favor in God's eyes. So Buddha Levi says over here that the Avram Avinu who discovered God through thought is not the Avram Avinu that we follow. And it's not the religion that we follow. And therefore this book that we find that's Avram Avinu's book and it's about these kinds of speculations about the mechanics of how God does things. That's the early Avram Avinu, first part of his career. The Avram Avinu that was then chosen for God to reveal himself to, who then only subsequently, after God revealed himself to him, that's when he became the Avram Avinu, the founder of Judaism. But this is the Avram Avinu, the philosopher, the thinker, and this is not what our religion is about. So it's an amazing idea. And then he quotes the Chazal that told Avram Avinu, same as to Gnina Shalcha, leave your astrology which says which he says means abandon this kind of thinking about the stars or thinking about nature in a way that's not certain he brings a story that um from plato which is 
not in, in the Platonic works, but anyways, he springs from Plato that there was a prophet in the generation of a king called Marinus who said uh, to a philosopher based on a vision that he had, to a certain philosopher who sought to earn a revelation from God through philosophy, he said, that's not how he will reach me. God, he speaks the name of God. He says, that's not through philosophy will he reach God, but rather through those that I've placed to be the intermediaries between me and my creations. Those are the those intermediaries are the prophets and the laws. The king then asked the cover to tell him something about the wisdoms that are in the Talmud that indicate that they had knowledge of uh, science, natural sciences. So he mentions that um, their knowledge of astronomy was exact. They knew the exact length of the lunar cycle. 29 and a half days and 793 halakim. They also knew the exact the seasons of the of the um, sun such that they could always such a Pesach never always falls out into the in the spring and he mentions that there's two tkufas. One is considering each season to be 91 days, 7 and a half hours and according to that Pesach wouldn't work out but really we follow the other Tukufa, which is uh, exact. It's Bitsinah, that's not the one that's public, and that one is exact, and Pesach will not fold out, will always fold out in the spring. Uh, he mentioned the secrets of the moon. This is actually a piece that we skipped where he spoke about how Eretz Yisrael is determines the Yom Taivim. And he mentions that the Sefer, a Pirkut of Lezer, has is full of astronomy, which we don't have a lot of that, by the way, in Pictoraleza, and the nature of the stars and the constellations, planets, etc. Written, the author of that book was Rebeleza from the great Chachme HaMishnah. Shmuel knew astronomy like he knew the streets of Nadal, the Gemara says. But the reason why the sages studied astronomy was for the mitzvah, because in order to know uh, the halachas about Shchodesh, and when is the new moon, you have to know a lot, all of astronomy and geometry. Okay, what else do we know about wisdom? So he says, we find many things in the Talmud which they which they knew great wisdom and must be they had great books about science. So the king says to him, well, what happened to those books? If they had science books, how come they got lost while we have these random statements here and there in the Talmud that remained? What happened to these special disciplines and the special knowledge about all these sciences? So the cover tells him that Yes, there were scientists among the Jewish people, but those were specialists. There were astronomers, there were doctors, there were surgeons. But what happens is when a nation becomes impoverished, the first people that are lost from, from the nation are the elite. And then you lose the masses. So we lost these elite people with their wisdoms. All we had was Sifre Torah, which are the books of the law, which are necessary for the masses. So that's why whatever is in the halachic books, Whatever is mentioned in the halachic books that has to do with the science is preserved because that's what the masses needed to preserve. While the, the elite kind of wisdom that only special individuals had was lost when the nation became impoverished. And then he used a bunch of examples of the wisdom that we could see in Chazal in the laws of Trephus. He mentions many of them. Um, things about the anatomy of animals. What is considered mortal for, for an animal or not? What is not considered mortal? Many things. He's very, very interested in Nicholas Trafus. He sees a lot of wisdom there. 
the simon of which animals are kosher, which are not, how animals can die from being poisoned or trampled by other animals, the Mishnah is about mumim of Kahanim and Bechairis are very great. You can see things there about surgery and anatomy um, and the laws of Dam Nida, the laws of Dam blood at Samamaka, the zebras of males and females, and Saras indicate that they have tremendous deep knowledge. And this thus ends the fourth essay. Okay? And now we're going to be in the fifth essay, and the fifth essay says, I want you to teach me, the king says to the Chav, I want you to teach me about the Kalah. I want to know your opinion about them. I want to know, should I accept them? And it's a very interesting conversation. The king says, you know, I'm lacking pure faith. Pure faith does not come through Hakira, through philosophy. I have my questions. And because of my questions, I spoke to philosophers, and I spoke to, and this takes us back to the beginning of the book, I spoke to people from various religions. So at this point, I see I need to study, I need to ha learn how to argue, because otherwise I'm not going to be able to answer those who have arguments against religious beliefs. So it's very interesting. He's saying I need to study this kind of argumentation, philosophy, and the Kalam, because the fact is once I engage in this kind of research, I need to know how to answer, like Damash because I need to know how to answer someone who's going to make a challenge against religion. Tradition is good, he says, says the king, for a calm soul. But a confused soul needs to do mecha, needs to do his own research. Especially if he knows that the research is going to lead him to upholding the tradition. Because that's what the Kalam did. The Kalam were using thought to buttress the religious beliefs. And the Chavah says back to him, he says, Is there among us a, a calm soul that is not seduced by the various kinds of opinions that bang around the world? Science, astrology, magic, people, philosophers, people of the world that has always existed. In our days, says Abid Alevi, no person reaches faith before passing through all the levels, all the various levels of apostasy, of Kira. But life is short. And only few people have natural faith. Those people immediately recognize the problem in these kinds of arguments. I think, says the cover to the king, that you're from those special people. But you're asking me this question, so I'm going to answer you because I'm not going to do like the Karam do the Karam go to metaphysics and knowledge of God without going through the steps. I'm going to give you the steps so you should understand something about prime matter and the elements. So he's going to give him a whole system of, of science, then nature, the soul, the intellect, which is all the, that's all the wisdom scientific um that's physics, Chachmasateva, and then we're going to get to metaphysics. And then I'm going to prove to you that the soul doesn't depend on the body. We're going to talk about the next world. And then we're eventually going to get to the idea of God's decree and the fact that man still has free will. And all this, says the Chavar to the King, I'm going to do in a very concise way and make it easy to understand. So he's basically going to give a whole system, a whole background of reality according to philosophy, according to, or what we can call it science. So he says, what do we sense of things? We sense quantity and quality. That's what we sense of things. It's our intellect that tells us that these, that these, what we sense of things, their size or their various qualities, heat and cold, are qualities of something. But that thing, which is the subject of these qualities, that's very hard for us to fathom in and of itself, because every we can't fathom something that doesn't have quality or quantity. And such a thing is actually can, is impossible to exist. But 
we go back and we say, well, the quality and quantity don't exist in and of itself. So there must be something that bears them, a substratum. And that's what the philosophers call the hyla. Hyla, H-Y-L-E, it's a Greek word, or hyuli. And they say that the reason why we cannot understand this in and of itself is because it does it's not complete according to its essence. It doesn't exist in actuality. In other words, the hyuli only exists theoretically, but it has to combine with, it has to take a certain quantity or quality. And Aristotle says, he quotes Aristotle saying that the Yuli, the Hyla as it was, is embarrassed to appear naked and only appears after it has a form. And that, he says, is this takes us back to something we had in the fourth essay where he says the water mentioned in Voracious is referring to this Hyla. And the Ruach HaLekim Rachefes, the Spirit of God hovering on the face of the water, is the will of God that makes everything, makes the Hyla into what he wishes, when and, and how he wishes. Like a potter does with his material. Chayshech, darkness, toyavoyu, is a lack of form. Okay, so we have this hyla, this, this basic idea, prime matter, and then the divine will, or the divine, which is the divine wisdom, decreed that the sphere should move. Now, the spheres move, okay? So the spheres move, and that causes that the hyla changes. The one that's closest to the moon, now just to remind you, the spheres, there's these spheres, the lowest sphere is the lunar sphere. And the lunar sphere is considered a quintessence, a fifth essence, a fifth element. The lunar spheres and above, the heavens were considered to be a different element than the sublunar world. So the four elements are in the sublunar world. And the reason why we get four elements is because the hyla is influenced by motion. Okay? So the part that's closest to the moon heats up, and that's how we have fire. That's the, the element of fire. And then we have air, water, and earth. That's because it's in the center. It's the furthest from motion. So the king so the king says, okay, so everything according to philosophers happened just because wherever something was in proximity, the closest something was to the motion of the spheres, that's how it was affected. So everything happens just by chance. The king says to him, yes, but the philosophers still have to accept that there's a wisdom, a divine wisdom, that makes everything into what it is. Because, in other words, you can't just say, okay, it's a chance that the high was affected in such a way. Why? Because fire is something different than air, and air is something different than water. Water is, di water is different than, than, than earth, not just in a matter of degree. Rather, each one is its unique thing. So there must be something that gives everything its form. No one says like this. No one says everything is dirt, but with a, a, a various dirtness. Or everything is fire, of various degrees of thickness and coldness we say no it's a different element it's something else so something else must have made it into something else which is why the philosophers also believe in a divine intellect that gives things its forms gives certain things to plants certain forms to plants certain forms to animals although everything is made up of the elements there's a vine and there's a palm palm tree and those are two different things because they have two different forms so the philosophers also accept that the forms come from a divine thing. And they call that thing the intellect that gives things its forms. So the Khuzri, the king, is very impressed by this and says, yeah, you know, we should accept this. But then why do we have to accept that anything is by chance? Why don't we say that just the same intellect that made one thing a horse and one thing a man made fire, fire, and earth, earth, and not because it happened to be close to the sphere. And the Chavar answers them, yeah, that's in fact what the Torah claims. 
In other words, that things came to be because God wanted them to be that way and not because of uh, a chance thing of where they were. And the sign of this idea, that, in other words, that God does things directly, is B'nai Israel, and the miracles where things would change from one thing to another one, and everything that happens for, for B'nai Israel. In other words, if not for that sign, he says, if not for that demonstration that God does sometimes affect things directly, people would argue that nothing ever happens without a cause. And everyone would say, like, why is there a vine in such a place? Because there was happened to be seeds here. And everything happens for another reason. So the idea that there's something direct from God that's only supported by the miracles that happened to B'nai Israel. And the king says back to the Chavar, even if you're going to argue that everything happens you know, due to causes, but eventually you're going to say, well, what happened to the first cause? What makes the sphere move? And also, if everything happens due to the motion of the spheres, then how come there's not an infinite number? No, not infinite. Why isn't there more? That's not clear. He's saying basically if everything that happens, all changes that happen are due to the motion of the spheres, then we should see a lot more of differentials, a lot more different kinds of things in the world rather than the numbers of species that we know. And the Chavar says to him that's a good claim, especially because we see that everything that exists has a certain wisdom in it. As Aristotle in his book, in a certain book says, and in the book by Galen about the, the purpose of the limbs, we see that the wisdom of God has a purpose. And we see that the animals are created for man. That's a domesticated. So therefore, the point is that we should say that things are not by happenstance, but rather due to divine giving, informing, as in giving a form. And he says, that's what Barchi Nafshi, we're talking about, Hashem, in that Mizmor, it says, how great are Hashem's actions. That is the argument against Epicurus, Epicurus the Greek, who says everything is by chance. He says, well, look, everything has so much wisdom in it. So the king says, you know, I want to understand that Mizmor, even though it's going to take us off topic, I want you to explain to me the Mizmor of Bachinafshi. And here, Buda Levi shows how the Mizmor of Bachinafshi, that part of Tehillim, that part of Tehillim, corresponds to Voracious. It first talks about light, then it talks about the heaven, um, then it talks about the earth, Yasat Eretz Al Neha. And he says beautiful things for understanding that Mizmor and for understanding Voracious. Um, he goes through step by step. Tachi or its dash of the creation of of vegetation corresponds to Mashkar Hamelyosov and makes things grow. And the purpose is for humans, as the Pasik says, for man. And that corresponds to Embracious, where it talks about man giving humans his food. So the Barkinavshi corresponds to the creation. Um, I'm going to be Mikatsu on that, but then he says then he talks about the purpose of the luminaries, also Yerech Lemoyadim, and that night has a purpose. Certain things only happen at night. The animals come out, as the Pasuk says, and people can rest at night. Then he turns to the um, sea, and there it says, Marabu um, where he says, Chayes Katanas Im Gidoilis. Um, where he says, sorry, Marabu Maasecha Hashem, because in the sea there's so many animals even more than we can know and fathom, and therefore it talks about how great are Hashem's actions. Hashem Hashem In fact, Hashem is happy. That takes us to the end of the first paragraph where it says Hashem made everything and it's toif ma'id. And here he talks about the seventh day Shabbos, which Hashem sanctified, and he says an amazing thing about Shabbos. Beautiful thing. He says the following. Rudal Levi says, At Shabbos is when man, everything, was com- the creation of everything in time was completed. 
capped by the creation of man. Man is like an angel who's above time. Why? Because the intellect doesn't need time. The intellect at one moment can fathom everything in heaven and earth, right? So everything in heaven and earth, when it develops, it develops through time. It changes through time, over time. And that's what the six days of creation correspond to. But then the mind of the human being is above time, is beyond time, because it fathoms this all at one moment. So therefore the level of the, of the man is like the level of an angel, and that's called the world of rest. We don't have to work because the intellect doesn't work. And therefore, therefore Shabbos, he says, which is past the six days of work, six days of time, where things happen through times, that's the time of man, where man is like an angel through his intellect, and that's why it's me'in olam haba. It's like olam haba because you are beyond the action that takes place in time, and now you are in a world of angels that acts not through time. Beautiful thing. Okay, then he continues to get back to the, to get back to the topic of, of philosophy and how it understands the world. So we have, basically, we have this whole cosmology of cosmology, cosmology how the world came into being, and um, what we learned so far is that there's this prime matter, which is then influenced by the motion of the spheres. In the middle, the king objected and said, what do we need this for? And again, Rabbi Levi tells him that's right, but he's, he's presenting the philosopher's way of thinking. Okay, so now we have all the elements mixed together, right? And each of them became able to receive certain kinds of forms, various minerals, and then plants could have some sort of life. Further, they can become animals. Plants have some sort of sense, and they look to good soil and water, and avoids things that are against it, and it grows and makes seeds. And this all happens according to the great wisdom that the philosophers call Teva, nature. Nature that preserves it. Eventually, by the way, here he comments that truly it's not nature, it's truly God. Call it what you want. Call it nature, call it soul, call it force, call it angel. Those are all words for indicating that something that's giving this its rules, giving its laws. Something is more, more perfect and it can get more divine wisdom so it gets a higher level of form and that's what an animal is it has more control than a plant and it can move that's called nefesh a soul various kinds of souls according to the various kinds of mixtures of the elements even though we don't know and according to the intention that God had the wise one with every single animal even though we don't know many of them what their purpose is just like we don't know we could see a boat and if you're not a master of boating you won't know the purpose of every single part of the boat we even don't know he says the purpose of many of our very own limbs and if we would see all our limbs laid out in front of us on the table we wouldn't know what each one does even though we always use them and they work perfectly okay so there's all these various kinds of animals all these various souls. so basically he's taking us through the, the world right how it came into being what philosophers and what it's all about so he says each soul each animal is like its own soul and each one therefore gets the forces it needs an animal i'm sorry a lion that has this a soul that has courageous strong gets the appropriate tools for that sharp teeth deer are meek and also have the ability to run so each soul is has a certain kind of kind of inclination a kind of character and a body to match 
in man, all the forces of life are balanced. So man gets a greater form. And that's intellect. Men are different because most of them don't have balanced intellect. And um, the more that he goes into the humors, the more that these four humors used to be believed the four liquids or we could call it hormones in the person that would influence him in certain ways. If a person would be balanced in his influences, then he could be in control of himself. And then he doesn't have great desires and he wants to, and then he would look to seek a greater level. And that's the greater, that's the divine level. Not following his own forces, but rather seeking seeking counsel and direction from God to be the right path. And that's a person that will get the divine spirit, the divine the, the spirit of prophecy, if he's a prophet, or illumination, if he's lower than a prophet. Because God gives everyone whatever he's worthy of. The philosophers call this the active intellect. They consider an angel close to God. And they say that when a person cleaves to the active intellect, that makes him, uh, that he finds eternal bliss and eternal life. Now he goes into this idea of the soul. And he says, here how we're going to prove that animals have souls. Because animals have motions that, that the elements don't have. And then he talks about, okay, well, what's the soul? The soul has three parts. There's one soul that even plants have that's to grow. Another one that are shared by animals and man. And the third one is the one that only man has, which is the intellect. But all of these don't come, all of these, the soul comes not from the form, but not from the matter of the thing. Everything is what it is due to its form. Okay, this is the hylomorphism, the idea of um, everything is matter and form, and the soul is the form of any living thing. Any form that a person has, that anything has, is its perfection, because that's what makes it achieve its purpose. So the soul then is a perfection. But there's a first and a second perfection. The first perfection is the source of actions. And the second one is the actions, which means first perfection is the possibility to do things. And then what you do perfects you. So the soul is the first perfection because it's the source of action. Now, what is perfection? The perfection, any perfection is a perfection to a body or something that's not a body. The soul is a perfection to the body. Any body can be man-made or God-made. The soul is a perfection to a natural body. Anybody, okay, and it goes going through exactly what the soul is, and this leads us to the point that the soul is a potential for perfection. Now, how do we know that the soul is not part of the elements? Because if the if the soul was in fact part of the body, then one of the things that all the things that make the soul, let's say the soul was just the total came from the elements themselves, then it would be something more elemental. It would be like one of the elements, or they would be clashed with each other. The soul doesn't have any of these clashes that the body does. So therefore it must be not the elements themselves. Then he goes into the various forces of the soul. Um, I'm just going to say this very briefly. He says the, the, the soul of the Chiyunis that is shared by, by even plants, sorry, by, by animals and um and humans has the the digestive power, reproductive power, and growing in between. So it's as if a thing was made to reproduce, 
and therefore it digests and grows to reach that stage. Okay, then he goes to the what the um, senses of the soul are. We know that outer senses, now he goes into inner senses, and there's a psychology of memory and how we think and how we combine ideas and how we remember ideas, uh, which I'm not going to go into all the detail about that. Okay, so this is basically his psychology, or representing the psychology of the philosophers, the powers of the soul, the appetitive powers, the rational faculties, etc. Here I am really going to be skipping ahead. And here he says, this is the summary about these people, uh, about the people, the philosophers thinking about the soul. Uh, the rational soul, human, so they describe what the intellect is, and how the intellect can get concepts into it, either through divine illumination or acquiring them. The ones that the intellect gets through divine illumination are first principles that everyone, every healthy person knows by their nature. And then the ones that they acquire are the ones that they seek through logic and proof. Okay, and what do they acquire? So, so he goes through how humans can reach certain conclusions about matter, form, nature, time, space, all the ideas that are in the mind. Okay, numbers, and then it's different sciences of numbers, music, and then eventually you can reach metaphysics, knowing first principles of things, knowing the attributes of things, knowing that there's a potential and actual, and so on and so forth. Okay, and principles of science, like the principles of math, they're based on ultimately logic. Eventually, you can affirm the existence of God and the first creations, mean the first principles of things, and the soul, and the idea of species, and so on. How does the soul get this? So the soul starts with its inner senses, which we mentioned briefly earlier, and analyzes them, divides them, and so on. Here again, I am I'm really going briefly through this. There's major psychology, if you want to understand the psychology of the Rishayinim, presented by the, through the philosophers, this is a very, very good source of excellent summary. Um, when the, the soul, the rational soul, seeks wisdom, it's called Seichel Iyuni. When it's like, that's called um, a contemplative kind of intellect, a theoretical intellect, and then there's practical intellect. Some people connect to this, to the agent intellect, and therefore he doesn't have to figure things out through their own Iyun, and that's called holiness and Ruach HaKadosh, the Holy Spirit. Okay, now he goes into proofs, again, that the soul is not an accident of the body. An accident means everything has accidents. It's, it's, it has things about it which are non-essential. And he's going to prove that the soul is a substance, not a body nor an accident in the body. This is a conversation which you might remember from Amunusideus of Sadiqa. It also talks about this, how we know what the soul is. And he proves that because the divided body it doesn't divide a soul. And thing, arguments like that, proving that a soul is something separate from the body. And this is very important, by the way, because... Buddha Levi mentioned, I think this is the beginning of the fourth essay, that people used to deny the existence of a God that's separate from the world because they denied the idea of a soul that's separate from the body. So, meaning, and we have this also, of course, in Yiddishkeit, the idea that the Neshama is connect, tells us something about God, it's a divine spark, these kinds of ideas, which basically means that if we believe that something about us that is immaterial, that is the window into thinking about something in the world being immaterial, of course. 
So he argues with the proofs that the soul is immaterial. For example, it doesn't get weaker with age, while every physical force does. I mean, intellect does not, things like that. Okay. Okay, the soul, which is separate of the body, can be separate from the body. In order for it to do its function, you have to overpower, you have to control all the forces of the body because those militate against the soul doing its thing, connecting to the intellect. When it's completely free from the body, it becomes perfect and eternal. It connects to that intellect, which is forever. So the king is very impressed by this, and he says, this is great. I find that the philosopher's opinion is greater than all the other ones. And the Chavar says to him, this is what he was afraid of, that you would find the philosophers, you would think it's, it's true, and you'd be very impressed with it. Because the philosophers are the one that brought proof when it comes to math and logic. And that's why many people trusted that their physics and the metaphysics was also true, because they thought that, ah, the philosophers always have proofs. But here he starts arguing against many of the things he said. He says, why don't you start doubting? So this is the cover basically responding to the king after, he's, after he presented the king with the philosophical system of all reality. And the king's very impressed. The cover tells him, you know, you should have asked some good questions. And here he lists a bunch of things. He says, why did you accept that there's an idea of four elements? And that there's a, a fire, the element of fire, that um, is different than the fire that we know of. Have we ever seen such a fire? Basically, he starts showing different arguments against the, the elements. We never find these elements. How do we know that these are elements that comprise things? Where do we find that there's an, that there's a, an item, a material, that splits up into its original four elements? Even if a part of it turns into offer earth, it's not really earth, it's, it's ash. If something, if something turns into water, it's not quite water. So basically, he's taking apart this argument against the elements. He's saying you should have asked these questions. According to the Torah, Hashem created the world as it is. And there's no need to say that everything is made up of elements that, that comprise all bodies. Once you admit the creation ex nihilo, everything becomes very simple to understand. Things didn't exist, and now, through God's will, it does. So why do you have this problem of how are their bodies and how are their souls? You don't have you don't have this whole problem of saying, okay, things got perfected, and once they get a reach, once the elements combine in a certain way, they become more susceptible to a kind of perfection, and that's the soul. No reason to accept it. And he says he goes even further. He says you could even accept the stories of Chazal about Shadim and the miracles that we expect in the days of Mashiach. I Meaning, basically saying that there's no reason to be so scientific. God does as he wishes, how he wishes. And why do we have to bring proofs that the soul will last after the body? If the one who told the one who every word of his is true told us this in truth in our tradition. Whatever the soul is, let the soul be, he says, whether the soul is spiritual, even if the soul is physical. We accept it because that's what we're taught in our tradition, and we believe everything there. If you want to use logic to support or argue against any of the pins about the soul, you will waste your life without reaching conclusion. And who knows whether you're going to be saying the truth. Who knows that the truth is? How, who can guarantee that the soul is actually a, an intellectual thing that has no, takes up no space? Then what makes your soul different than mine? What makes your soul not part of the Sechel of the antiquity intellect? Why isn't Aristotle's soul and Plato's soul unite? So again, he's asking questions. How come they don't know what each other knows? 
How come they don't know what the other philosophers knows? How do philosophers forget things? Why do they have to think about things part after part? So he's asking again questions about the idea of the philosopher's idea of the soul. What if a person has certain knowledge and then he forgets things? Is he a different person? What if he learns it again? Does he have now two souls? Okay, so again he's asking questions about philosophers and he says, um, you should have you should have asked these questions. And then, this whole idea that when the soul perfects itself, it's eternal, because it's non-material. What does it have to know so it's eternal? Does it have to know everything? There's many things in heaven and earth and the sea that many philosophers don't know. If it has to know even a small amount of knowledge, then every soul knows something, because every soul, everyone, by nature, has first principles. Maybe you'll say they have to know the ten categories of Aristotle. But that's very easy. That takes one day. And it's hard to imagine a person could turn into an angel in one day. And if you have to know everything through logic and nature and science, that's something that's impossible. So according to philosophers, there wouldn't be any one person who's eternal. So the Chabad tells the king, that have you been seduced to believe that you can know that which the Creator, God, hasn't given us the ability to know. And things that the human nature cannot know through logic. The only ones who can know this are pure people, and only in the conditions that we said. Those are doing the mitzvahs and therefore achieving prophecy. They have the souls that can get a sense of the world, the totality of the world, know God and its angels, and his angels and know each other know the secrets that are in each other's souls and here he references that Elisha and the other Nevi'im all knew that Leonov is going to die that day we don't know how that happens through what except for seeing it through prophecy if the philosophers had a theory of it they themselves would reach this level because they're the ones that always talk about the soul and about prophecy but they're just like other people the only thing I'm better about them is that they have human knowledge. As Socrates said to the people of Athens, he said, People, I don't deny your divine wisdom. All I say is that I don't know it, because I only know human wisdom. The philosophers have an excuse. They needed to use logic and reason because they didn't have prophecy in the divine light. So they used demonstrable proofs. They considered those to be the perfection and devoted themselves to that. And in fact, demonstrable proofs is no machalikas, no arguments, but... Past that, metaphysics, and even a lot of physics, is a lot of debate. If people agree, it's because they follow a certain sect. This is something you mentioned earlier in the book. They follow Pythagoras, Empedocles, Epicurus, Aristotle, Plato, Stoics, etc. About the principles of existence, philosophers have disgraceful opinions. For example, the idea that the reason why the spheres move is that the sphere is seeking perfection and can't move everywhere so circular motion is the most is, is, is the best way to move so he says this that's he, he thinks that's a, a, a disgraceful idea the idea that the angel derived from God 
by the fact that he contemplates God and by contemplating another angel is derived and by contemplating himself a sphere and that ends by the lunar sphere that's a terrible idea so you see he's repeating things that we had in the last essay earlier today which some people take as suggestion that this book was composed in different parts that were then connected and he says these kinds of opinions are less proven than those opinions in the book of creation but even with all those opinions there's doubts and no agreement between one philosopher and his friend but we can't blame them in fact we should praise them because they tried their best and they didn't have they didn't have divine revelation that's it with for philosophy and now he wants to tell them about the kalam okay so the kalamic proofs again these are the muslim theologians and the cover says that there's no point in doing that the only purpose of this is sharpening basically sophistry and being able to answer curse a wholesome wise man like a prophet is a very interesting thing doesn't teach each other through these kinds of dialectic and logical proofs while the kalam it's all about this this apparent wisdom that people think is superior to this kind of accepting wisdom from a prophet but the objective of this kind of dialectical argument is to reach that level that a simple person can accept from a prophet and in fact this kind of dialectic will make a person have less faith and he gives a very beautiful analogy he says let's say you have a person who wants to study poetry and song so you can have a lot of theory about that and it's really hard to hear that difficult to follow but a person who has a natural ability to do write poetry and has a feel for for the rhythm and meter he'll do it right he'll never do it wrong while people who did it people who studied it and you know they could analyze the the science of poetry in a way that a an artist who do, actually does poetry might not even know he can't teach anyone else but actually he can teach someone who is like him. So in other words, a poet can teach a fellow poet in a very small amount, someone who has something in him that responds to it. So too, those people that are naturally close to God, by being near a Navi or a Chaz, a pious person, that can light a spark in their souls, in their hearts. But someone who doesn't have that in his nature needs this kind of dialectic and reason and scientific argumentation, which in fact might help. So he tries to deflect the king's question, and the king says, look, just give me the basic ideas. Okay. So now he's basically going to give him, so now the Chavar is going to give the king the argument of this Muslim theologians, the Kalam, and how they prove what they want to prove about God. So what they want to do is they want to prove that the world is created. And the way they prove that the world is created ex nihilo, because once you know the world is created from nothing, then it follows that there's a God that created it. So they want to prove that the world didn't always exist, and the way they prove that the world didn't always exist is because arguments against an infinite number of causes. Basically, I say there would be an infinite number of people till today. How would we ever have gotten to where we are today if there's an infinite number of causes necessary? And how could there be, in infinity, there can't be relationships. So there can't be, let's say, um, one infinity can't be greater than another, but the sun goes around the earth once. When the moon does 12 cycles, which means that the, 
the infinite number of the lunar cycles would have to be 12 times the size of the infinite number of the solar cycles. That can't be. So there can't be an infinite number of things. So these are the arguments against that. Other kinds of dialectic arguments, you could say, about um, proving that the world is created, which I'm not going to go into. Pretty detailed. Pretty deep. Um, and then they prove that once we prove that that the world is created, they prove that God is not created because then you have the same problems about God. Um, they prove then that God is eternal because once you know that he's meaning into the future, because once he was eternal uh, in the past, Kadmon, he must follow that he's Nitzli because nothing to cause him not to exist. They can prove that God is not a body because bodies have accidents which are Mechudash, which come to being, and God is not Mechudash, as we proved, and therefore he can't be a body. They prove that God knows everything because if he created everything, he must know everything. They prove that God is high alive because by having knowledge, we say he's alive. But his life is different than ours because our life is through sense. God wills because everything could have been otherwise, so he has to chosen this thing. Now, some people could say, well, you don't have to say that God wills. You could say that God's wisdom dictates how things should be. You don't need to say he has will. And that's, in fact, the opinion of the philosophers. God's will doesn't change because his will is inconsistent with his wisdom. So in other words, God always willed, and forever wills, what should be according to his wisdom. Uh, nothing changed when he decided to create the world. So because he accepts this, he's fine. That's enough for him. That, Then he says, you know what? Look, this is what you quote from other people. I want to hear what you think about certain things, about the soul, and I want you to specifically talk about the problem of Gezerah and Bechira. On the one hand, we think it seems to be these arguments for saying that pre things are predetermined and decreed by God. And then there seems to be also arguments in favor of the fact that God has free will. How do you make those things work together? And this is now he's asking the um, the king here is asking the clever to to tell him his opinion about this and tell him what he thinks about it and stop presenting. We're done with presenting the opinions of the philosophers and the Kalam. And here, the Chavar responds to the king with a very long analysis of causality, how we attribute things to Hashem's providence, and where free will fits into that. First, he says that everyone deep down believes in the idea that certain things are possible, can go either way and depend on how you choose, because everyone takes steps to get what they need which means that they don't believe everything is preordained regardless of how they respond. And yet, everything is attributable back to God's providence. And the reason is because everything eventually traces back to Hashem. Either Hashem has a, a direct intention for something to be the way it is, or Everything is traced back to Hashem indirectly, one cause following another, all the way back to the first cause. And then he says you can divide all actions into various kinds of actions. Godly, natural, chance, or by will. Godly are those things caused directly from the first cause. Natural is through the intermediate causes. Accidental are those intermediate causes, but not with a certain intention or with a certain order. And the Bechirim, the ones that are free will, is man's choice. 
But free will itself is a kind of intermediate cause that also has its own causes that eventually trace back to the first cause. But it's not absolutely determined. There's always the possibility and the soul, as he puts it, which is between each opinion, can choose according to its will, which he wants, which is why we praise or disgrace a soul for its choices. But we don't disgrace something, other things that cause, that cause things automatically, we don't blame them. On the other hand, we don't say that everything is automatically caused directly by God firstly and directly, because then we'd be able to say the world is always constantly being renewed and miracles wouldn't mean anything, because the world would be constantly being created. Okay, so the idea of free will, if you believe in free will, <clears throat> doesn't that take away from God's providence? The answer is no, because eventually it traces back to God. But now what about the fact that God can't know them, because if God knew them, if it's truly possible, it cannot be known. Okay, so he says the Kalam dealt with this. And they said God cannot know these things in a certain way. Okay. Which is to say that the fact that God knows something is not the cause of its being. So therefore, just because God knows the way things will be, doesn't it's not what makes it be that way. Now, what about the thing of God testing people, Nisayan? By the way, these things are all dealt with in sort of the same order in the Maranabuchim, in the guy. What about the fact that it says Hashem tested Avraham? So it seems to be like Hashem is looking for information. He says, no, that means that Hashem brought the piety of Avraham from potential into act so that Avraham should gain by so everything comes either directly from God or through the causes. Now you could say, you could always say everything comes directly from God. And the Hamayin, the masses always say it comes from God. Why? Because that's safer and more supportive of faith. But the truth is, if you look into it, you'll see there's differences between people, places, times, and circumstances. And you'll see then that the things that come directly from God are mostly in the Holy Land and a special nation, which is B'nai Israel. And that time, back then, when there was still prophecy, when the Bishkin was dwelt, and certain circumstances, which is the mitzvahs and the chukim. Nature and chance didn't benefit them, and didn't harm them when they kept the mitzvahs. Which is why, or religions bring the stories of B'nai Yisrael as a proof against <coughs> Epicurus that says everything is by chance. And those people that are called Epicureans, they seek pleasure, because they consider that to be the only good. While the man of Torah wants to find favor in the eyes of Hashem and he'll even give his own free will over to God. He looks for illumination or miracles if he's a prophet and his nation is favored by God. Therefore, he'll keep all the mitzvahs. He doesn't pay attention to the intermediate causes because he realizes it's not important. The I'm sorry, the natural and the accidental causes because he knows that the illumination from God will warn him away from it or a miracle. If he's a prophet, prophets are taking miracles that will protect him. So he says, I went a little bit off topic, but then he goes back into the idea of what causes things to happen. He says, David Amalek divides the cause of death into three. He talks about Shaul and said, either Hashem will smite him, which is directly caused from God, or his day will come, and that's nature, or he'll fall in war, and that's um, things that happen accidentally. The fourth kind, which is free will, David doesn't mention because no one chooses to die, even though Shaul ultimately committed suicide. It's not because he choose, chose to, it's because he had to avoid being tortured. 
Then he says the same thing you could talk about in speech. There's four types of speech. There's the speech that's direct, directly from God. The prophet is directed by God directly and cannot change even one word. Natural speech is speech that reflects what the person wants to say. Um, that's the kind of speech that it comports with the thoughts in the, of the soul. That's natural speech. And then there's conventional speech, meaning that's what he means, I think, by Lashon HaKadosh, that is truly reflects the nature of things. Conventional speech are part, partly nature and partly free will. Accidental speech is when people, people who are, um, are not in full mind and have no intention utter things. And choice, speech in, by, by choice is the speech of a Navi when he's not prophesying or a thinker who decides what to choose. And even those, all of those two you can attribute to God again through a causal chain, not directly to Him. We don't say everything is a speech of God, only indirectly. Now what about the thing that everything was going to be God knows about, so why should you do anything? So He says, well, then you shouldn't do anything, but the thing is that God knows what will be and what will happen through the intermediate causes, among which are your very action. So the action then is part of what makes it happen. The only thing that comes directly from God without intermediate causes is miracles. And those don't require understanding intermediate causes. The only causes for that is the knowledge of the secrets of the Torah and understanding those. And those are, in fact, in fact knowledge of the Torah, its secrets, and understanding is effective for, these kinds, for causing these miracles. Now, what's the point of Hashem commanding people if He knows what's going to happen? The answer is, again, that people do what they're supposed to do based on the fact that they're commanded. So then He says the following summary. You have to accept that there's a first cause for everything. There's everything for a purpose with an order. And you can see that from nature. You can see that clearly from nature. Secondly, you recognize that there's intermediate causes. Third, you see that God gives everything material the form best form that it could have, because God is good and does best for everything. So you can't say, why am I not an angel? Like a, a worm can ask, why am I not a human? Every matter becomes the best thing it could be. The fourth principle is to recognize that there are levels in reality. That which exists and has consciousness is higher than that which doesn't. It's closer to the first cause, because the first cause is intellect. Right? God is intellect, so that which is intelligent is closer to the first cause. The lowest of plants is higher than the best of the um, minerals. The lowest animal is higher than the highest plant. The lowest human is higher than the highest animal. And the lowest human who keeps the mitzvahs is higher than the best who do not keep the mitzvahs. Because the mitzvahs that come from God give souls the attributes, kind of behavior of angels. No other way to get it. And the proof of that is that keeping these mitzvahs brings a person to prophecy, which is the highest of the divine levels that humans can get to the divine. So therefore, a mitzvah keeper in Yisrael who actually sins is better than someone who lacks a mitzvah because the mitzvah, the godly mitzvah already gave him a certain kind of angelic kind of behavior which makes him on the level of angels. And even though his sins ruin this order, he still has the effects and the, and the desire for the mitzvahs. And if he would, he would choose, he wouldn't choose to be on the level of those who lack the mitzvahs, the non-Jews. Just like a person who's sick, who would say, well, you know what, we'll give you a choice to be a horse or a fish. 
will burn and just ha live happily and then not have his intellect which being close to God, he wouldn't choose that. The fifth thing is to recognize that by hearing myths and commandments, you are affected. That itself affects you. And the sixth thing is to recognize that you do have the possibility to do things. What, things that you're able to do, you find yourself having the knowledge of knowing how to do them. So this is the sense of we're supposed to understand how God um, controls things and um, ultimately the human being. But eventually, he says, we can trace everything back to the first cause. Again, the things that when there was a Shkina Ben Yisrael was very clear. And the things that happened after that, he says, it's a, you can question whether, in fact, the history of Ben Yisrael came directly from God or is um, perhaps accidental. But in the hearts of the faithful, there's no doubt. However, there's no proof, but we should attribute it all to God, especially the great things like death, victory, or, 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 or defeat in battle. Or great successes. So these very, very important ideas over here about what we consider to be coming from God and what we consider to be part of the whole system. Really, really fundamental ideas to how you approach life, how you approach your own life and your own Jewish, his and Jewish history. Here the king says, are we supposed to really know all this? And the cover tells him, yes, we're supposed to think about all the justice. In other words, we're supposed to consider what God does to man and why. And we're supposed to understand the ways of God. We're supposed to understand when God punishes, how he punishes, how Chuvo works. And he says, if you actually look into it, You'll know the mo most of the reasons for Tzadik or Ali Rashi And if you can't figure out, you should assume God is doing just. And when you reach God, the substance and, and its attributes, the substance of God and the attributes, you stop thinking about it. You should recognize that we're blinded and we cannot understand God. But that's because we don't have the ability. But those who have the prophetic vision, it's very clear to them, this substance full of light and very clear that they don't feel a need to bring a proof. The highest level that we can know is that if in nature we can see things without seeing them a natural cause and know that it comes from God. And also we see in miracles that certain substances turn into others and nature changes so that's clearly some effect that's outside of nature. So we say, okay, there's clearly something immaterial that controls the material things. We can't know what its essence is. We could just look at its actions and stop describing its essence. Because if we could, that would mean that we, if we were able to describe his essence, we, we would mean we'd be imperfect. Don't worry about the philosophers that divide the divine world into many levels. We consider them one level, just the point that everything that there is something beyond the material world, and that is sufficient for us. The reason why the philosophers say all these levels of divinity is because they saw the motion of the spheres. They counted them. And they thought each motion has its own cause. And they thought that these motions are not natural and come from a free will. So they said each one has a soul. Each soul has intellect. Every soul is an angel, an immaterial angel. And they call those gods, angels, secondary causes. And they call the lowest one the active intellect. It controls the world, according to them. From it comes the hylic intellect, afterwards the soul, afterwards nature, and so on and so forth. But these are only good for argumentation, sharpening the mind, not for knowing the truth. And if you follow this, you're going to end up being a min and a pastor. Don't! Listen to the fact that the Kairab say, look, David Amach told his son Shlema, da es know the God of your father. So you might think, oh, Kairab say that the first thing is a person has to know his God, has to know the truth of God in order to be obligated to serve. That's the Kairab say that you have to know God through science, through philosophy. And the Buddha Levi says the truth is a David. When he told Shlema, know God, he didn't mean you should know what he is philosophically. He means you should rely on the tradition to believe in the, the God of Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, who manifest providence over the fathers at all times 
and fulfilled his promises. So da means experience and know, relate to him and um, recognize the God that, that watched over forefathers and gave the Bnei Yisrael and put a Shekhinah amongst us. And that's what it means. Elohim doesn't mean the ones that you don't know about the truth, rather the ones who you didn't experience in any way. That is the book's ending, and here we have this, the, the summary of the book, which ends with a story. That after this whole conversation, the Chavar decided to go to the land of the Kuzas to go to Yushalayim. And the king said, why are you going there? Why are you going to Etzor? The Shekhinah is not there. You can find closeness to Hashem wherever you are. And, and this is very interesting to understand what's happening in the story. One thing to think about is the fact that the king, the Khazar king, who, whose kingdom converted, stayed in Khazar. He had no interest in going to Etzor. He's a Ger. And he doesn't understand what Etzor is about. Remember, Etzor is for B'nai Etzor, who could be Nevi'im. Another thing to understand is that prior to this in the Sefer, the king said to the Chavar that you guys should all be going to Etzor. And the Chavar said, you're right. But that's what he's talking about, the tzibur, the masses going. Here he's going as an individual. And the king says to him, what do you have to go as an individual? And the Chavar tells him that the revealed shechin is missing because for that you need a navi, prophet, or a tzibur that's desired by God. And we're hoping to get that. But the hidden shechin, the spiritual hidden shechin, is with any B'nai soul of pure heart. And only in that soul can you have pure actions and pure heart. Because only in a place we believe is dedicated to God even if it wouldn't actually be dedicated to God, only in such a place can the heart be pure. And Eretzol is, in fact, dedicated to God. So only there can a person have pure intention. Especially if he's seeking atonement for his sins, which can't be Karbanis. So I go into exile to Eretzol to atone for my sins. The fact that I'm endangering myself, he says, is not a problem of testing God. And it's very interesting, it's a halachi, saying that a person can endanger himself to go to Eretzol. And he says, look, people endanger themselves to go to business. People endanger themselves to go on holy war. So he says, I can certainly do this too. Interesting. And the king says to him, but you're looking for more mitzvahs. Don't you love freedom? And the Chavar tells him, I'm looking for freedom from the Shibud. So he's talking about Shibud Malchias here. I don't want to be enslaved to people that I don't care to find favor in their eyes. I only want to find favor in not people's eyes, but in the eyes of Hashem. The king says, well, God knows that you, your intention so why do you have to put it into action? God knows your innards. And the Chavar answers him and says, yes, God knows what a person's intention is, only for he can't act. But a person is free to act too. And therefore, a person cannot expect to get reward without revealed action. Very interesting idea, which for some reason he leaves over here at the end of the Sefer, that the trip to soil is the demonstration of action, putting his action where his heart is. And he says that from a Pasuk, the Pasuk says we blow trumpets to remind Hashem about us. Now, Hashem doesn't need our reminders. But just like, um, but in order, but any idea in our mind has to be expressed in action. Two, um, action without the idea, or the idea without action, you don't attain anything. Only if you can't do the action, then you say, okay, Hashem will recognize the intention. Also, he says, by inspiring people to love the holy places, that is earns reward and by making people love Eretz Yisrael, you bring the Geula closer, as the Pasuk says, which means, and only be rebuilt when B'nai Yisrael have a strong desire to it till they love its stones and its dirt. And the king says, if that's the case, it will be a sin to hold you back, and to mitzvah to aid you, may Hashem help you. And this we end, it's wonderful, wonderful Sefer, which is, you could learn it again and again, focus so much on, on, so many different parts of it. I hope I gave you a sense 
of all the wondrous things, many of the wondrous things that are in the Sefer, and I hope you, I hope I inspired you to study it more. Next Sefer we're going to learn is Hamuna HaRama from Rabbi Ram Ibn Da'ud. Um, that'll be in a few weeks from now. Meanwhile, I want to remind you that if anyone would like to sponsor one of these uh, Shirim, please get in touch with me. My email is available on the podcast site. It's orisyakov at gmail, O-R-O-S-Y-A-A-K-O-V at gmail. Um, and looking forward to continuing the series with Safer again, Amuna Arama.